Today we are in 1 John. We are going through this letter. It's towards the right in your Bible in the back, just before Revelation. And uh, it's a beautiful letter. It's titled 1 John because God has chosen to convey his truth of Scripture with human involvement, if you would. It's his truth. He will just pour it into a vessel and bring it forth. And then the vessel we know that he used in this particular one we're looking at was a man by the name of John. He also poured what we know the gospel according to John. He poured that into him and brought it forth. We know also there's this other book at the end of the Bible called Revelation, that John was the instrument that God's truth came through. It's important to see it's not John's gospel. It's not John's letter. It's a revelation of things to come. It's not just his first of three letters. You see what I'm saying? It's important to know it's the word of God coming forth through his instruments. And he chose between Genesis and Revelation to bring these truths of eternity through people, to people, for people. So that we can actually relate and kind of have more of an association, if you would. So we're not, in a sense, seeing God high and detached, although he is high and lifted up. But it's an element where he's conveying to you and I that it is a relational thing. It's the big difference between uh, effort and experience. Effort is oriented around what you can do for God. It's called religion. And the relationship is what God has done for you. And so then you and I live in response to what he's done. That, that's why we have this relationship. So let's begin with the word of prayer. I know we pray a lot here, but that's not a bad thing. Um, let's pray, God. As we approach your word, we, we do believe, God, that you have um, a message for each one of us. Those who are not here, physically present, but able to listen through uh, digital technology. Those of us that are here together. We know, Lord, you bring a message to us as a group to grasp and see how it all fits together. But you also bring a message to us as individuals. And you bring amplification, illumination, truth to our hearts that you will walk us through, carry us through, and show us how to live by this. Not so we can perform better, but because we understand you are perfect in all of your ways and you've called us to you. Bring your word to life today. Help us to live it tomorrow and throughout this week, that you would be glorified by what we think about, by what we look at, by what we say and what we do, and we'd be transferred, conformed, brought even more into your image and likeness for your glory. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, the series we're working through in 1 John, I've titled it, Love God, Love People, because they're intertwined. You know, you, you love God as you love people because God's love is in you. You've been empowered, enabled to love people more than just your natural perceptions, your natural, like, even desires. We're actually, the Bible tells us that we're, and we'll see this today, that we're actually supernaturally enabled to love beyond our own restrictions, beyond our, our, our fencing, our, our relational boundaries. We can love people in a, in a way that we never thought possible because we have his love present within us. Now, we've been going through this letter, and we find ourselves this morning in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 12. So let's, I'm gonna, I'd like to read through that. My desire as I teach the Bible is, is, well, at least twofold. The first part 
is that you personally would be blessed, you'd be encouraged by what God teaches you, and, in, and also that I would somehow be an example and an encouragement to you to read your Bible. So I like to read through a, a portion and then come back around and then, go work, and then walk through that portion so you even in yourself can find that model, that practice implemented in your personal life at times where you too dig in and, and see this way of approaching Scripture and letting the Holy Spirit teach you. So let's begin in verse 12. We'll read through verse 17 of 1 John chapter 2. I write to you, little children, because you are forgiven for his namesake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the wicked one. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now with that overview, that content of the passages we'll look at. Let's return to verse 12 and walk our way through this. You can see as we've read through this, there's almost a literary style, a, a poetry type passage we've seen where he addresses the little children, the fathers, and the young men. That's not meaning gender specific, it's just the way they wrote in that day and even to this day. And so we're going to see here that he's addressing first little children. And what that is, is it's God bringing forth his truth through John. John is further along the journey with Jesus than others. He's been traveling longer with him, experienced the touch. He walked with Jesus physically, literally. And so he's now speaking to every child of God. That's what that is addressing. Everyone who is born again, everyone who's experienced the forgiveness of God through the work of Jesus Christ, he is speaking to them, and notice what he says to them, to you, to, I, to every one of us who are born again, because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. So let's consider that. God speaks to you and me, reminding us that our sins are forgiven. Now, as Christians, and I know many of you, you, you know this truth. You've experienced this truth. Some of you experienced it years ago, but never leave this truth. Always keep it in the forefront, in the, in, the, in the resident side of your mind. Some of you have resident memory, right? And I have some non-resident memory. I don't know where it moved to, but it doesn't reside the same. And so I, I think these things are really important to be able to, to bring them forward and remind myself, and rem, you remind yourself, your sins are forgiven. And when you're reminded of that, you can only really embrace that when you realize what price was paid to accomplish that, when you realize, man, and it's not like you, you kind of get in some emotional down or whatever, oh man, Jesus did so much for me. It's just these things are accomplished. He ha- you are forgiven. He has accomplished this. Now notice it's for your benefit, agreed? You, I, I benefit from his gift, from his salvation. Salvation comes when, when we respond to his prompting. And what I mean is an unmerited favor, an undeserved kindness, 
is brought into your life, maybe even today, where you realize that you personally have sin. You have issues that basically leave you separated from God. What is sin? Well, to put it simply, according to Scripture, it's an archery term. It's missing the mark. So if we have, like, say, we just take, we're going to shoot the K out of NKJV or on the, on the board, and so you all just kind of draw your, your bow, and you get your arrow going, and you launch. And a couple of you are pretty close. You hit just below the end. One of you takes out, you know, the, the 2 and 212, and you're pretty close. You're actually doing really good. And there's a few of us that missed the whole stinking wall. We weren't even close. Matter of fact, we just about took out somebody in front of us. We're so far off. Who missed the mark? Which one of us would fit into the category of a sinner? A sinner was one who missed the mark. We all missed the mark. The Bible tells you and me that everyone, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have missed the mark. So we're naturally um, comparative, uh, competitive. We notice that we were closer than that person. You know, sitting in this room, you got people around you, and you don't have to go identifying them specifically, but they're a bigger sinner than you are. They miss the mark. You're pretty tight. You're pretty right. You know, you live good. You, you pay your bills. You know, you mow your lawn. You, you know, you clean up after the neighbor's cat, whatever. You do your good things, but you still missed. And then there's somebody who knows they don't, they've never mowed their lawn. They're growing dope in the backyard. So you're like, you're not near as bad as they are. That's natural. We compare. But guess what God says? You all missed. You have all missed the mark. And the only means by which that can be reconciled is the Bible says that the wages, the cost, the penalty for missing the mark in God's true judicial nature, his justice and who he is, the only way that can be paid for, the wages of sin is death. So therefore, to pay your debt, you would have to die and the problem with that is you'd be dead. It'd be a problem, agreed? So you can't pay your debt, and even if you tried to pay it, you'd be dead. But if he who knew no sin, so he has no sin debt, who knew no sin became payment for you and me, then he could forgive our sins. He, that's why that's the simplicity and the beauty and the truth of being forgiven. Someone else died for you. God came as a man lived a sinless life. He endured the challenges and stresses and trials of this life. There's nothing new to him, I mean, new to you that he doesn't know according to the book of Hebrews. As our great high priest, he went through it all, yet did not sin, laid down his life as a payment, and offered that life to you. How do you get that? How do you sign on the dotted line? How do you make this deal? You do nothing except believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You put your trust in him for eternity, for forgiveness. Now, all that I just went through, when you personalize that, you benefit immensely from his pain and suffering. You benefit immensely from being forgiven. And the longer you're a Christian, the more apt you are to lose the sensitivity to that painful reality. You kind of take it for granted. You ever thought about that? You ever heard of the secular phrase, um, familiarity breeds contempt, right? You can just be so familiar with it. 
And you don't ever want to go there. So my encouragement to you who are born again, to experience this, just remind yourself of his love and his forgiveness. Your sins are forgiven you. So it's your benefit. But the text tells us there's something else involved in it. Not only is it for your benefit, it's for his namesake. What? Yeah, it was for his namesake that your sins are forgiven. He's savior of the world. He's not a, you know, this probably doesn't make as much sense now. You remember the blue light special stuff? How many of you know what Kmart is? Okay, so some of you have been around a little while. So there's the blue light special. I remember it as a kid. It's the discount stuff. It's the broken stuff. It's the return stuff or whatever it was. It's just like get rid of it stuff. You don't have blue light faith, okay? You don't have a blue light savior. You have perfect salvation. And it's so important because I see people and I engage with people. And I've been one of those where sometimes you just don't feel you measure up. You don't feel saved. You don't feel like it's all put together. You still got to work out a few things. And I got to, no, he's perfect and complete in all that he does. It's for his name. He is a perfect, complete savior. He doesn't get you into the kingdom and say, if you can now do a few things, you can stay. That would be crazy. But instead, he's like, you're mine. You're my child. It's for his namesake. Let's look, if you would. Take a left in your Bible. Go over to Romans. Settle in on chapter 8. We'll even project these portions of Scripture for you. Now, we've seen, as we read, 1 John 2, this relational principle that's being presented of the family of God. And now we see here, considering the family, but also the perfect nature of God our Savior, we're reminded in verse 9 of Romans 8, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of Christ of God dwells in you. If, in this context we're seeing, really carries the meaning of since. Since the spirit of God dwells in you, now, since anyone does, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not his. You're not born again. Verse 10, and if Christ is in you, since Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. We know that's his righteousness that brought us this new life. Verse 11, but since the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So this new life in Christ is not just a modified life that we we rediscipline ourselves. It's new life. And sometimes your friends, neighbors, family, co-worker, they perceive that you're just getting your act together. You ever heard that? Oh, they got religion. No, they're getting their act together because they see the outward and they perceive you're just kind of cleaning up your act and living a better life and being more moral and ethical or whatever. But we know that's not true. That's not why we do what we do. It, what, was, what is true is that the Holy Spirit, God himself and the person of the Holy Spirit, this perfect work, the one who raised Christ from the dead, he, he indwells you and in me. So we're changed on the inside. And of course, now there will be an expression the people see the expression, they don't understand the experience. Their only observation is something outward, so it's logical in a way that they would deduce or conclude, hmm, must have got religion, cleaned up their act. But you're, you and I are going, hmm, there's much more than that. It's not that I've just got to be better. I've actually been, I've been literally been brought to new life because of his perfect work. 
See, it's so important that we keep this in order that because of his perfect work and who he is as the perfect Savior, we are changing and being changed. That's the work that's a result of the relationship. And so you notice, stay right there where you're at in Romans 8. Look down just a little bit with this thought, this topic. In verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, you can even see that as daddy, daddy, Abba, father. The spirit himself bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So here we are in the family. It is for his namesake. He's the perfect savior. He's brought us in as his children. When you know who your father is, it affects how you deal with things. If your father's in jail and always been in and out of jail, it affects how you engage with him. But if your father's contrary to that example, your father is kind and good, and you have an inheritance financially, you have a a place relationally, you're in a position socially, because of your father, you see what I'm saying? you, You process life different. How much more when we realize who our Father is as Creator, our God, the one who brought us into a born-again, a regenerated experience, that He then would lead us. He's perfect in all of His ways. Let's, if you would, join me back in 1 John chapter 2. Little children, we're speaking to every child, picking up again now in verse 13, fathers. So what's this addressing? I think you can see it as well. It's talking about different, different um, states, not levels, but different points in your journey with Jesus. We start as a child, but we also know there's spiritual fathers, if you would, those who have, have known and walked in the truth for a longer period. By God's design, a father in a home provides leadership, example, support, encouragement, and so that's what's being conveyed. There's those who provide that. Now, notice the trait or distinctive that should be identifiable or knowable about this person who's walked with the Lord longer, a father. What is the trait? What do you see in this text? The fathers, you have known him who is from the beginning. It's so important that we understand that and see that. That to, to fathers, it's to recognize those who are around you would have an awareness that you really know Jesus. You know, knowing Jesus doesn't make you look perfect. It actually makes you look broken, actually. Because it's not about you. You, you long to be conformed into his image and likeness. And maybe, you know, it would be, well, obviously it'd be a good thing that people would know that about us. You know, um, in the book of Acts... Peter, I believe it's Peter and John, are brought before the Sanhedrin, the, the religious ruling council, the authority, if you would, in that day. And the authority said this of these men. These are untrained and uneducated men. It wasn't meant to be a compliment. <laughs> you can understand that. But they said this. But they perceived that these men had been with Jesus. 
It was, it, was a, it was meant to be snide and derogatory. It was one of the most beautiful compliments a father or a person could ever receive. I don't think you got the religious thing down. I don't think you do this whole thing very well. You're not fitting into Judaism. You're not doing it the way we show you to do it. But we know this. You have been with Jesus. See, that's, that's what we see here in 1 John. For the fathers. That they, they, there's something about their relationship with Christ. And it says here, you, you caught that. You have known him who is from the beginning. You have known him. That's not someone who recites the, the principles or regurgitates from memory the, the passages. Known there means you walk with him. You have a relationship with him. Fathers, you have a relationship that, you're, that those around you, and, and don't, it's not just your children that's important, but those within the fellowship. That's why I believe it's so important to have engagement like we have here. You know, COVID changed a lot of things in 2020, and, and I think there's some really good things, honestly, that come out of it. One thing that came out of it, I think, is the, the digital dynamic, uh, the video side, was actually fine-tuned even more. You know, we'd been doing it for 10 years before COVID. But things were fine-tuned, and it created in a way that you can, you can be tracked with the messages and stuff. But it didn't create this, and it didn't replace this. It actually was a poor substitute for this. Because you just don't, it's not the same. There's nothing that compares when we come and gather together and we worship with, with weird voices and odd octaves and all the little things related, but in perfect harmony, we're, we're singing unto him. It's a powerful human experience. And to even sit like right here and to be able to soak it in as we finish up, we'll have engagement, interaction, and connecting with people we know and meeting new people. It doesn't compare. So being able to do that is as powerful because it's actually God's design is that we would have fellowship and our fellowship would glorify him, that we would engage and interact. And where else are you going to live out this principle that the older men, and it's not a gender specific thing, the older people would be able to share with the younger people. The little children would be impacted and the younger men is, is really where it goes next. You notice in verse 13, he now repeats, he says, you know, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. And I'll, I'll say this just briefly because we're going to come back to it in the next verse. But, you know, the, the young men are those who, you know, recognize the enemy and have fought properly. Recognize the enemy, that there's a spiritual element in this world. It's not yin and yang and sometimes good wins, sometimes bad wins. It's literally there's a spiritual forces of wickedness that are trying to dethrone God and never will. They will never do it. It's already documented. It's already made known. It's prophetically. I mean, it just speaks ahead of what's going to happen. It's been that prophecy element has been perfect in the past. And you can, I can guarantee you, even just considering the past, the future will be right on. The enemy will not ursup. He will not take the throne. Or he tried it and got evicted out of heaven. So what I say is, the young men, they recognize the enemy and have fought properly. Bringing us back now in this verse 13 to little children. Notice once again, the emphasis is on relationship rather than performance. Now you're a child of God. You're born again. You're just getting started. You got to do this and you got to do this and you got to be there and you got to show up and you got to, you know, that's not what it says. What's the distinctive? What's the, the verifiable uh, expression, if you would? You have known the Father. 
You know the Father. You have this relationship with the Father. What we do is a result of who we are. And as children of the Father, there's, a, there's a, an expression. That's, it's really, it's, it's visible to the measure that we understand that. So I guess I could say even to the level I understand his love, to a certain point, that's how much it'll be visible. And the more I understand his love for me, the more you understand his love for you, regardless of how you feel or what some other people might say, but the more you understand his love for you personally, when you have known the Father, the more it changes your life. The less you are concerned about some other's opinion or other issue, you, you now are being changed because you long for him more than that. Where we're more hungry for the things of God and less interested in so many things of the world. Verse 14, there's a repeat to the fathers. The, literally the same wording, I have written to you fathers because you have known who, him who is from the beginning. Fathers are the older ones That's in this picture. And he repeats it to the fathers because the older you get, the more you forget. It's not the only reason. I just think that's a reality. It's good to be reminded because, you know, sometimes you have to take your wallet out, check your ID to make sure who you are. Maybe not that extreme, but they're just, just repeated to the fathers. He, re, he makes this reminder. I humor it. I touch it with humor, but it's, it's really important. Don't forget what God has done for you. And the longer you walk with the Lord, it's easy to become complacent. Not intentionally, but it can happen. And I, I just want to encourage you, you know, religion can be learned Religion reminds you of what you do. Relationship reminds you of who you are. Do you see the difference? And the more we do, the more we're about, good things even, if we find ourselves noticing those things and, and kind of being tilted towards that, do you see what's happening? Instead of relationship reminds us of who he is. And I, I think that simple reminder, notice what he said, you have known him who is from the beginning. You know God, you have known God, you continue to know God, continue to walk with him. Keep life really simple as possible. It goes on as well in verse 14, saying to, I have written to you young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Young men. The exhortation is, you know, the, the trait is you, the word of God abides in you. So it doesn't abide in you if it's not in you. That makes sense? So there's a discipline, a part on our part, because the word of God's important to me as a person, and, and I need to, I want to know it. So there's a discipline on my part to, to settle into it. I've shared this with you before. Um, as a young Christian, and not much of a reader, I just never have been much of a reader. Uh, I just would rather go do. And so anyway, I'm trying to learn how to read and bring this in. And I, I remember it vividly. I remember laying on bed. Because this is how silly I was. I would go to bed to read. No, you sleep in bed. I don't care how noble you think you are. I lay down and then the light shut down. That's just what happens. That's probably why I'm up here teaching because I was sitting there. I might be snoozing. So I just, when I settle in, I just start. Well, I would lay down to read the word of God. And I'm like, oh, I fall asleep. And then Kim would nudge me. Like, oh, no, I was reading. And at one point, I literally did this. I took the Bible. I'm reading through. Fall and said, oh, man. God, I just, I want to know this. And I had this really beautiful idea. 
I put it on my heart, not on my head. I wanted it in my heart. And I said, God, this is a true prayer. It was about as, as beautiful of a childlike prayer you could have. God, could you just transfer it? Just, could you just, I literally, we didn't have the term download back then. It was more of a Star Trek reference, perhaps. Could you just bring it in? And, and I, was, I wasn't joking. I mean, I was, you shouldn't laugh at my prayers. It was, it was serious. It's like, God. But yet, see, why would I want to do it that way? Because I didn't want to get up a little earlier. I didn't want to stay up a little later. I didn't want to give up some of these silly hobbies and practices and things I was doing. I didn't want to give up those up. I just wanted to have it. And it was then I realized, man, I, it, there's, just, there's a point where I realized I, just, I, I decide what's important. I, I want to be strong in the word. I want to abide in it. I want to know it. Look with me, if you would, at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2. It's an interesting thing because as we're looking at fathers and young men, Paul was like the father to Timothy, if you would, spiritual father. He was the one God used to bring Timothy further along in his journey. And, and so he's writing this letter with Timothy in mind. Obviously, it's preserved for you and me. But it says here in chapter 2, verse 1, to Timothy, you therefore my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard from me, among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Young men, be recipients. Older men, be willing to train. Do you see? There has to be a face-to-face engagement. It has to be an interaction. And he's being encouraged. Notice this. You can study it on your own. Be strong in the unmerited favor. Be strong in the undeserved kindness. Be strong in the grace. It's easy for us to be strong in other things. It takes a softening of a heart and a work of God for us older men to be strong in grace and model that to those around us. Let's move back now to 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. I want to leave just a, a simple exhortation uh, taken, drawing from this picture of what we have and this relationship that we can consider how it's laid out. Fight the good fight of faith. Children are trained. Older men provide wisdom and support. Younger men engage in the battle. Not that all of us, you know, we all engage in the battle, but could, do, do you see the picture? If you physically go to war, you don't send the young children. You don't send the old saints, the old warriors. Who do you generally send? The young men. The older men are there to provide wisdom and instruction and encouragement. The young ones are being trained up to be prepared later. So there's a really simple picture, I think, for the battle that we face. Fight the good fight of faith. Engage in the battle. Here's the four points that I'll share with you real briefly. Because I believe we are called to know our season and know the day we live in. First one is stand strong. You can draw that out of 1 Corinthians 15. Stand strong. You will be tested. You will be challenged. You will face opposition. But stand strong. That's a determination you make based on the relationship you have with the Father. You determine to stand strong. You know where your strength comes from. When you review this text tonight and this week at home, when you review it, you're going to see that it comes from knowing him abiding in his word. There's an element of humility, a hunger. So stand strong, know where your strength comes from. 
Galatians tells us, do not grow weary in doing good. Sometimes, it's, is, this, is this me? Or do you agree? Sometimes life is exhausting. Literally exhausting. A, a whole bunch of good things that just wear you out. But it says, do not grow weary in doing good. So it ties together with knowing where your strength comes from. The fourth point I would bring to you, today's skirmishes prepare you for tomorrow's battle. Today's skirmishes prepare you for tomorrow's battle, just like what's happened in the past. Some hard things many of you have went through actually prepared you for other things that were coming. And I think it's much better to learn from that and be strengthened by it so when this comes, because it's not if it comes, it will come. If you aren't strengthened, it will still come. If you're not ready, it'll still get here. It's much better to realize that the today's skirmishes prepare you for tomorrow's battle. Consider, if you would, in Jeremiah chapter 12. I love this because it's an exhortation. If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted, they wearied you, then how will you do in the footplain of the Jordan? You see what that's saying, right? Dude, you think it's bad now? You think it's hard now? We, we really, in our land, we still have relative peace, sort of. It's not, it's not the same as it was 10 years ago. There's a greater political divide. There's a greater cultural separation. There's not near the integration and conversation. It's being this, creating a bigger gap. Do you think it's going to get easier before it gets better? I, I, it's not, I'm not like a gloom and doom guy. I'm just being truthful. It's going to get worse. It's going to get harder for you as a person. If you stand on the truth, if you speak the truth in your workplace, even with kindness and empathy and compassion, if you hold to the foundational truth of this world, of this life that God has given you, you will be accused. You will be challenged. You will be threatened. You will be put on notice by those around you who are totally opposed to it. And they'll come off like angels of light. They'll come off crafty and deceitful, but they will make accusations. It's going to get worse. So if we're weary now when we're engaging with the footmen, you see you know, the picture, right? When you got this simple skirmish going on and you didn't even got tough yet, you're going to bail hard when the horsemen show up. I would rather think, okay, I, I'm going to realize I don't really like it. I like easy, kickback, comfortable, Sunny in a high of 75. <laughs> I'm just human. But it, it doesn't, that's, I don't like it either. Because I don't like to be lazy, lethargic, and just sluggish. So guess what? I want to encourage you. Fight the good fight. Be ready. Be prepared. Let's jump back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. I know a lot of you have been waiting for this one. Do not love the world... Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What what does this mean? The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So we know that world wasn't just for like we would think of as the cosmos, the Greek word. We know as we read the context of John 3, it's for the people on the planet. So God loves the people. We know in Genesis, we're told that God created this little piece of dirt we cruise around on, this planet, the universe, and he said it is two thumbs up. We said it was good, that's my translation. 
So we know it's this created realm is not the part that he's speaking of. What is he speaking of? Well, let me kind of walk through a couple things to consider. Because the word that's used there in the context tells us it speaks of the order, the arrangement. In a sense, almost like the governing or the, the, um, the system that's in place, so to speak. God loves people that are in this world. God created the world and it's good. When he created the world, we know back in the book of Genesis, we're told that he created mankind, unique among all creation. Created only, exclusively, man in his image and likeness. And then we're told that he gave mankind dominion over this world, even over the the animal kingdom, if you would. But something happened. When mankind received that dominion, in a very short moment, man handed that order, that arrangement, the governing of this planet over to Satan, and Satan implemented his plan. That's what's called the fall. At that point, it's just handed off. They were evicted from the garden. They've aided the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They know what's right and wrong. And God, in his mercy, said, you got to move lest you eat of the tree of eternal life, and then you'd live in a forever perpetual state of knowing right and wrong and lacking the power to live according to what's right. In his mercy, moved, him out, moved us out. And, and, and we've just kind of repeated that reality in a sense of how we live. Satan was given this planet, so to speak. He's under God's reign, but he's given a short season. Basically, sadly, you and I get to see today how good we can do with the atrocities, the horrible governments, the terrible things that take place the murders, all the different things, we should just pat ourselves on the back. That's the best we can come up with as men. When we rejected God's dominion, God's design, and turned it over to his enemy, because we said, I'll do it my way. Mankind said that. Jesus told us really straight up, he gave us the ministry statement, the uh, brief description of the purpose of the enemy. He said his purpose is, His job description is to steal, kill, and destroy. We know that he will lie. He's called a liar. He'll deceive, he'll hurt, and he'll discourage humanity. There is a satanic, a demonic, a devilish order to this world you live in. And we're not to love it. We're not to to hold on to it. The devil... Here's something to think about. If we jump over to... We actually have... We bring it up. Luke... Chapter 4, there's an interesting thing that took place. In Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 5, notice what's taking place. I'll show you, I'll give you the context real quick. Jesus has been in the wilderness, led by the Spirit, you'll notice when you read it. And so he's been 40 days in the wilderness fasting, right? At a point when he physically would be, if possible, his weakest, which he was. Then the enemy comes at him. Then the devil, taking Jesus up on a high mountain, showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Did you catch that? That includes the U.S. That includes now. All the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He shows Jesus all this, and the devil said to Jesus, all this authority I will give you and their glory, 
For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. And Jesus did not say, you little liar. He actually received that as a truth. He received, yeah, you have this temporary season. But notice how it goes on in verse 7. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. That's what the devil's saying to Jesus. If you worship me, then I'll give this all back to you. Which, you know, look what Jesus' response is. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you shall serve. Because he knew he was a liar, he'd break the deal anyway. So, well, not that he was even tempted to consider, but so. All that to basically maybe reemphasize or reiterate or clarify this world is this order, this systematic process, which we see, because here you know, if you've read your Bible, you know, God actually spends a lot of time telling you what's going to take place in the end, and he tells you and me that it's going to actually, this system is going to have an appeal to humanity. You know, we could fix things a lot economically and socially and globally and, and, and culturally if we just had one monetary system. If we just had one world government, it just sounds so appealing and so pleasing to so many people. And you're seeing it. You, you have to really be an ostrich to not know what's going on right now. Because you see it, and you're like, are you kidding me? You're, gonna, you're, you're digitizing and promoting exclusive digitized money to where when you have money in your account, the person who manages, the government who manages the account can determine how you spend that money they, they can actually affect your ability to purchase based on how many things you've purchased or not purchased. And people are like, that's a good idea. Then we'll all be nice to each other, or otherwise we pay a price. I'm like, what? Are you serious? This is what, but, see, but in one sense, it, oh, yeah. And God says, this is what's going to happen. It's going to start coming together and all these things. Because in the end, that's how it's going to happen because that's his order. Let's bring back to real life pra- application. Love people, enjoy his creation, but recognize the ruler of this age. His world is not your home. This is not my home. This is not your home as a Christian. Let's look into verse 16 as we get close to the end of the study. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Lust. It's a longing for, a craving, it's a, it's a strong desire that we have within us. The, the wording actually speaks of especially for what is forbidden. Um, you don't do well, I don't do well, even though I'm born again, with instruction sometimes. And let me support it with this. You walk out, you get home, you go up to Walmart, you see a sign that says wet paint, do not touch. And we all say, oh, I shouldn't touch that. Right, now you're a liar. Because most of us like, hmm, wonder how long that sign's been there. Many of us just wonder, it's like, do not touch now or when it was wet. You know what I'm saying? There's just something in us that's like, well, who, who has the authority to put that up? There's, we just, it's like, what is forbidden? There's a natural, the old nature. Now listen, understand, that old nature is present, but it doesn't control you. As a Christian, you're freed from that. The chains have been released. You're no longer shackled to sin. So you're no longer under the power of sin that would constrain you and lead you into more sin. But you are influenced by sin. 
The difference being I wasn't, I'm not tied to it. I can succumb to it, but it's still a choice. Or I can say, no, I'm not, that's not my hope. That's not my desire. So, so the lust, the long craving, is, is just this um, disproportionate appetite for the things I know I shouldn't want. It says also the flesh, the lust of the flesh. Flesh speaks of the sensual nature. It speaks of um, your, your physical senses. You know what you see, what you smell, what you hear, you know, this, this, these things. We can long for those pleasing experiences or opportunities. It can be relational. It can be sexual. It can be financial. It can be all these different things where we, we just, the sensual nature. Some call it, in a way, and I think it could be considered, at least to process, the animal nature in humanity. And where they come up with that is other creatures are created. Animals need to have sleep. They need water. They need food. They need air. There's a parallel. So some people say, well, animals and humans are just they're the same thing because they see this element that's natural of this environment. But see, we're not, that's not us. But yet sometimes we act, people act more like animals than humans. So this lust of the, uh, the flesh, lust of the eyes. Eyes is not only visual, but that would have been covered under the flesh. So what's the distinctive or the difference when he speaks of eyes? Well, eyes, it c- carries this uh, imagery, if you would, a kind of a, like a metaphor. It's the faculty of knowing. And maybe a word, we, a way we would correlate that or connect it is when you're talking with somebody and maybe you're not in agreement, you're not divisive, but you're just kind of working through it, and you would say something like this. Okay, so, well, all right, this is how I see it. It's not because you're looking at a written document, per se, in your conversation, you're like, well, this is how I see it, because you see what's happening? But if I find myself, or we see ourselves, this is how I see it, and, and that's become how it has to be, that there's a disproportionate appetite or hunger for you to know how I see it, and then therefore to agree with what I see. You see what's happening? That's why he said, don't be, don't be, these things things will just tear you apart. Pride of life. All this in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Pride of life is, it's a type of boasting. It doesn't have to always be verbal or bragging. Let me share with you what's, how it's listed in the Thayer Dictionary. An irreverent and empty presumption which trusts in the stability of earthy things. An irreverent and empty presumption which trusts in the stability of earthy things. Are there things here that are seemingly stable but are grossly unstable? Let me, let me say one word that will help you. Money. Money and the acquisition of it. Many people have put a lot of confidence, a lot of hope in, in what seems to be stable and, and it'll provide for the latter years and the retirement and all these things. And just go back in your mind and your memory. Just not that long ago. Do you may remember the dot-com debacle and the devastation for many people financially among Christians as well? Because their confidence, disproportionate trust was put in seemingly stable earthy things and it just it come apart. So, just work with this word pride. Should you take pride in your work? Yeah, you should. Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Yes, you should, you should want to do your best. It glorifies God. Should you, be, uh, should you take pride in your family? I think it's great. 
I think there's a biblical model to learn to see reality and also learn to lean towards support and encouragement. It's easy to find fault, but to be proud and to see things and to acknowledge things and encourage and support, that's a good thing. Should you be proud of God? And he goes, fantastic. As your father, you would speak highly of one who's done so much for you because you're so personal. But to have, to be proud or to have confidence in the things of this world, the system, money, possessions, retirement, your way of doing things, it's not good. Because these things are passing away. So my encouragement to you is make sure your confidence is in God, your Father, who is the perfect provider and protector. Now, if I say that, you go, oh, yeah, you're in church. You're going to go, of course I yeah, yeah. Really? Can I get a little personal? When are you the most happy? When your bank account's bigger? When your relationships are smoother? Those things have an influence on us, but they cannot be where our confidence lies. And as like I said, many things will pass away and devastate people, financially, relationship, whatever it may be. And sadly, it leaves many people in a turmoil in their walk with God because they can't see how God could do that to them. Because their relationship with God is so entangled by a love for the things of this world. We're all prone to it. So it's so important to like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back away. Verse 17, the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. This world will not last. Science is actually telling you that if you didn't want to believe what the Bible has to say. Or you're kind of having a hard time with prophecy and not sure how this means. You know what science says? Man... It's going to take a while, but the earth's going to burn, or the sun's going to burn out. It's going to take a while, but this earth that's spinning, according to the principles of science, it's not going to keep spinning. It's not going to self-perpetuate. It's not going to create more order. Chaos comes because it happens. You see what I'm saying? These are just science, scientific principles. It's like, oh, it's, just, it's all coming apart. But we know what this passage is speaking much more than just what they're observing through self-made gravitation or uh, scientific rules. We know God says this isn't going to last forever. There'll come a moment when I will return and I will call my people home. I will take those who know me and then walk in with me, those who are born again, I will take those to be with me and then I will give this world over to all that they've asked for, all that they've demanded, all that they would require which is life without God. All good removed and all hell breaking loose. I had a person say to me one time, well, I've been through hell. They go, how fancy and poetic. You got a bumper sticker for that? That's a dumb statement. You haven't been through hell. You have no idea how bad can, bad can be. You can't even imagine what it would be like for all good to be removed and nothing beneficial. I will agree with you, you may have been through hardship and horrible and tough times, but it does not even compare to a life where you choose to be separated from everything good for all of eternity. God gives you a reference point, like, you know, sulfur. Ever smell burning sulfur? Go burn some. (laughs) No, seriously, I mean, it's like, he's conveying to our sin, it's just like, it'd be terrible. And man, this world's passing away. I don't want to be, I don't want to hold on to this. I want to let go of it. So as the worship team comes back up, we're going to wrap up, and I'd like you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. We often close this way. 
where we look at a portion of scripture and then pray through that together. In 2 Peter chapter 3, so you're just going to go really from 1 John, you're just going to bump over but back to the left a little bit. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we'll look at verse 17. Would you stand with me? I have it on projection, so I'd like to read it, and then as I read it, I will then go back and kind of pray through it so we could have this mindset and attitude of prayer. And then in concluding that, we'll then go into a worship song together with the team leading us in uh, adoration and worship. Let's pray, God, or actually let me read first, I'm sorry. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 17, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. God, thank you for your word today. Thank you, God, that you've brought us into your kingdom, adopted us into your family. Our part, so minuscule, but so important. We responded to your offer and put our faith, our belief in you. You even give us a measure of faith to take hold of your truth. If you're here today or listening to this message, you don't have the confidence. You don't have the confidence that you are born again, born of the Spirit. Then I ask you to set aside everything that would hinder, anything that would affect or prevent you from being honest. And understand the love of God. It's his desire that no man perish. That all would come to know. That would receive. All would receive the invitation. And you would perhaps even now I challenge you just to receive his invitation. It sounds like this. You could say it yourself even. God I know I don't know everything. I know there's some things I just I can't escape. I know I'm guilty of doing wrong and missing the mark. I know that. And so beginning there, I would just ask Jesus, whatever it takes, I just ask you to, to forgive me and show me this new life, this, this born again truth. I, I don't even understand it entirely, but I just, by faith, I'll just ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe you are God, that you died for my sins, that you rose from the dead, you conquered death and hell, and you ascended into heaven victoriously. And so I would ask God that you would lead me in this new life. It's a request from all of us, Lord. You'd lead us in this new life. That we would not be foolish in the era and the age we live in, but we'd be aware. You know us, Lord. You know our tilt and tendency it's possible for me, it's possible for any one of us to stray, to neglect, to fall from steadfastness. And so we ask by faith, help us, O Lord, to keep our eyes upon you, that we're not led away by those who would look away. But rather, Lord, we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of you, Jesus, our Savior. Oh, that we would have a closer walk with you our relationship would just be growing and growing. To you be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Amen.